You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we'll be looking at verses, we'll actually be reading um, most of the chapter, verses 1 through 35, but we'll be focusing on a significant encounter that the resurrected Jesus has with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, verses 13 through 35. And as you're turning there, just want to ask you this question that maybe you think about every once in a while, how is How's your daily Bible reading going? Do you follow a plan? Have you been able to stick to it? When you read the Bible, is your heart warmed by your communion with the Lord? Are you filled with anticipation, excitement, joy as you open his word? What does any of this have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Well, it happens to be the central point of one of the most significant resurrection accounts recorded for us in Luke 24. This is a passage that I think is um, maybe, it's my favorite chapter in the New Testament. My favorite chapter in the Bible because it, it, it teaches us how to read his word. All right, it reminds us that reading the Bible is about intellectually understanding and being emotionally moved by the Bible's central figure, Jesus Christ. That's not emotionalism. That's not just focusing on the effect that the Bible has upon us. But it's acknowledging the fact that when we read the Bible rightly, it should impact us. And it should change the way we live. And it should change the way we think. And it should change how we feel about our circumstances. If the way we feel is out of accord with his word. And so this passage teaches us the importance of a Christianity that impacts both our heads and our hearts. Last week, we considered the triumphal entry of Jesus as he rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem with this large crowd shouting, Hosanna in the highest, giving him praise as their king. They were ready to crown him as their king right then and there, place him on the throne, overthrow Rome. They viewed him as the Messiah, the promised Savior, but they limited his reign to that physical realm, to a physical throne, and his salvation to a political freedom. But Jesus came to accomplish so much more. The entrance of the king was merely setting him up for a swift departure. And Jesus did indeed triumph, but it was through his death. It was through suffering upon a cross. As our king, Jesus defeats all his and our enemies, the greatest of which is our own sin and misery. In order to be forgiven, satisfaction for the penalty of sin had to be made. And that was accomplished on the cross. Jesus was the perfect lamb whose sacrifice was satisfactory once and for all. And there would be no more bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. The temple curtain was torn, separated, uh, in, uh, torn in two. And that, that curtain, which separated the, the holy place from the most holy place, right, from that inner court, it, it was torn from top to bottom. Right? No, no man did that. God accomplished that work. 
allowing them to have access by faith to the throne of grace. Anyone could now go to God through faith in Jesus. But that wasn't all. Right? In order to prove his redemptive power and to show that indeed sin and death had been defeated, the king had to return. He had to rise again. And so he rose again from the dead. This morning, we will read about that event of the resurrection. But I want to focus our time upon that particular encounter with a couple of disciples who had been with the risen king on the road to Emmaus. It was the same day, that same first day of the week, Sunday morning, the very first Resurrection Sunday, where they had this encounter. It's the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke is one of the most important passages of the New Testament. It's where Jesus confirms the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament, really of all Scripture. But at that point, only the Old Testament would have been written, right, that they would have had access to. And if the Old Testament does not in some way point to Christ, then we can know that we've read it wrong. These disciples, we'll see, had read their Bibles wrong. And they, like most of Jesus' disciples, were confused about the Savior who was to come and to rescue them. It wasn't until Jesus accurately taught them the scriptures that their eyes were opened and that they were able to rightly see him. And to respond in obedience to him. See, all of us begin with the same problem. Right? We need eyes to see. We need ears to hear. We need hearts to believe. Without them, we cannot know Christ. And apart from a right understanding of Christ, we cannot know God. And if we do not know God, then our hope is very small. It's, it's superficial and short-lived. It's only in this physical life, this brief life. But the risen king taught everyone with eyes to see where he could always be found. And so let's ask him for his help as we read his word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the resurrection accounts that give us confidence. Lord, these men who were so fickle, Throughout Christ's ministry, who oftentimes misunderstood what was said, who, who got it wrong all the way to the end, who were mourning the death of, of this teacher, this rabbi that they had for three years. <coughs> Lord, it's, it's, it's that, that same group that when, when their eyes are opened, when they have the faith to see who Jesus is, And they have the faith by the enabling of the Spirit to trust in him. That those same disciples are then found in Acts proclaiming him and risking their lives and giving their lives to death for the sake of this truth. There truly could be no more significant message for us to hear this morning. To be moved by that truth. To be challenged by that truth. Lord, to be willing to give our lives whatever you would call us to. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see, as we've acknowledged we need, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Lord, help us to respond in obedience, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 
So read with me Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them, who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about, these, about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, seen his, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going and acted as if, they, he, if he were going further. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us 
while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those, with, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, before we can hear the solution, we have to begin with the problem of unbelief. So if you're following along in your outline, that's the first blank in your outline, the problem of unbelief, verses 13 through 24. We're not going to reread everything I just read. It's a lengthier passage, but we'll highlight a few verses as we go through it. These two disciples obviously had a distorted view of the person, purpose, and power of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that, first of all, in verse 16, a distorted view of the person of Christ. They didn't recognize Jesus. In fact, it says that they were kept from recognizing him. Now, we know the, the, the mentality of these disciples. They were eager to find Jesus. They were eager to see him. So of all people, these two disciples would not have been apprehensive to believe. The reason they don't is because God had not given them this ability. And it makes it clear in that text, at least at this point, in this encounter, he withholds his uh, a recognition, their recognition of him. And this wasn't because Jesus looked radically different. I don't... I don't believe there would be a a significant difference in his appearance after his resurrection. Yes, he was in his glorified body. But there's nothing that indicates here that they didn't recognize him because he looked so different. It tells us very clearly that they didn't recognize him because they were kept from noticing him, from seeing him. And so the text specifically tells us they they were kept from recognizing him. God had not given them eyes to see him for who he was. And then in verse 21, we see that he had a, they had a distorted view of the purpose of Christ. And we've already mentioned this, right? They anticipated this temporal, physical redemption rather than the eternal, spiritual redemption that Christ brought in his first coming. They fully expected the Messiah to overthrow the Roman authorities, to take over Caesar's throne, and to establish an earthly reign. Right then and there. They didn't realize that Christ's purpose was much greater. He he hadn't come to merely rescue a nation in a particular part of the world. He had come to rescue people from every tribe, people, tongue. No nation would be overlooked. So they had a distorted, a truncated view of his mission, of his purpose. And then verses 22 through 24, we see that they had a distorted view of his power. They didn't believe the reports of the resurrection. They heard several, multiple reports, and they didn't believe them. They're still sad. They're still troubled. They're bothered. And we know that they didn't believe him because they would have stayed in Jerusalem. Instead, they're, they're beginning this journey seven miles away on foot. Since the fall, when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, our vision has been distorted. What we see is no longer accurate or true. Everywhere we look, it's as if we're peering through a fog. 
Right? We're blinded by that fog, and all of us have been born spiritually blind. In all likelihood, these disciples had heard a lot of Bible stories. They grew up gathered around a rabbi who taught them the Old Testament. They would have heard them every Sabbath and probably throughout the week in their homes. They would have been trained up. They had these texts memorized. It isn't enough to simply read the Bible. You must read it with eyes that have been opened by God to see its truth, to rest in that truth. And all of us begin with that distorted view of God. Unless the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to see the truth, we will not understand the Bible. I've sat in classes where the Bible was taught by an unbeliever. Many of you have done the same. Some churches are filled with pastors in the pulpit who don't believe what they're preaching. Unless the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to see the truth, we will not understand the Bible. We'll be just like the disciples here, unable to recognize Christ and to appreciate the significance of his life and death. And so the problem of unbelief is that it distorts our view of Christ. Our only hope is to rightly understand that the solution is Christ. That's what we'll see in verses 25 through 27. Notice verse 25, read with me. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus calls these two disciples foolish and slow of heart to believe. Now, notice I didn't, I didn't read it as this angry rant of a madman who's just like enraged, who's ripping out his hair. He's not shouting at them, you foolish, ignorant folk. <laughs> he loves them. But he is saddened that they have misunderstood for so long. He wasn't speaking to them as if this were a light and frivolous mistake. Oh, we all make mistakes. Don't worry about it, guys. You know, I'll reveal myself soon enough and you'll be fine. Now, this was a serious matter. And he doesn't take it lightly, and he wants his disciples to take it seriously as well. So, understanding who Christ is, understanding and meeting and seeing the real Messiah is going to involve criticism. That's what we see in verse 25. It also involves correction from verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, Jesus corrects his disciples with a question. They thought Jesus was going to overthrow the political system and sit upon an earthly throne. They expected Jesus to confront the Roman authorities, not the Jewish authorities. So he reminds them of what they had heard so many times taught to them from the Old Testament scriptures. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to go through this? So meeting the true Christ involves criticism and correction. It also involves the person of Christ. How marvelous it would have been to hear that sermon. And I thought, we all have these thoughts. When we get to heaven, what are we going to ask? What is, what is the first question we're going to ask God? Well, one of the first questions I want to ask is, can I, can I get a replay on that sermon? 
to know what he said. I mean, this was a lengthy journey, seven miles, and you know, as they're all talking, they're not, they're not speed walking through to Emmaus. They're, they're leisurely strolling and they're listening to their savior give this incredible sermon from the Old Testament scriptures. He's most likely not holding a scroll in front of him either. He's doing this from memory, just walking through the scriptures, walking from one text to the next, from passage to passage, pointing out how it, sh- how it all is fulfilled in him. And they don't recognize him yet. They don't know who he is. They must just think this is an incredible teacher. To know what he would have said would be powerful. And so you consider that. Right? What did he tell them? What passages, what passages did he refer to? In fact, the way it's described here, it seems to indicate that he could have gone anywhere. It's all of the Old Testament scriptures that point to him. That's how we're supposed to understand it, I think. The fact that the words of this sermon, that, that, that there's not one passage mentioned, not one paragraph for us to build off of, indicates that every time we open God's word, we should be searching for Christ. No matter where you are. Genesis 22, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 11. Wherever you are, Find Christ. See what it's telling you about him. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice ordained in the law of Moses. Christ was the true deliverer and king of whom all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history were types. Christ was the coming prophet greater than Moses, whose glorious advent filled the pages of the prophets. So he's the prophet, priest, and king. Whenever you read about a prophet, priest, or king in the Old Testament, you can see how it's either comparing or contrasting to the king of kings and lord of lords, the true prophet, the one greater than Moses, the great high priest. Christ was the true seed of the woman who was to bruise the serpent's head, the true seed in, all, in whom all nations were to be blessed, the true Shiloh to whom the people were to be gathered, the true lamb to which every daily offering pointed, the true high priest of whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure. See, Christ's preaching in this passage stands in stark contrast to some of the most prominent preachers today. They intentionally avoid talking about sin or the wrath of God or judgment. They avoid anything negative. But what we've seen here is that when you encounter the risen Christ, there's criticism. There's correction. There's a person whom we're communing with. And so if there's no criticism, if there's no correction in the pulpit, then there can be no Christ. Scripture, on the other hand, changes our faulty views of ourselves your biggest problem isn't your circumstances your biggest problem isn't someone else your biggest problem is you your desires your thoughts your actions that are filled with impurities 
Scripture is not full of uplifting sayings that you repeat to yourself like Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. People like me. It's, it's, if that's what you read the Bible for, you'll find that on occasion, right? You'll find some really encouraging, uplifting, uh, slogany type of phrases. Oftentimes they're turned into bumper stickers. But you're going to be frequently and far more often disappointed because the Bible corrects you, corrects where you've gone wayward. Scripture doesn't teach you how to have your best life now. If your Bible doesn't give you a critical assessment of human nature, then you're not reading it, <laughs> or at least you're not reading it very long. If you read your Bible to be cheered on, you will be disappointed. Scripture reshapes our view of reality. Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they had their worldview completely rocked, completely shifted, a paradigm shift for them. How they saw the world, how they saw their future was, was, was like they had gone through an earthquake. A seismic shift. And when we read the Bible, we should anticipate correction. We should anticipate being convicted. And we should know that all scripture points us to Christ. Scripture is not rightly interpreted if it doesn't teach us something about Christ. Each time you read the Bible in spirit and in truth, you're drawing near to a person. You're learning more about your Savior. Sometimes you'll learn about who he is, our prophet, priest, and king, or sometimes you'll learn about what he did in those offices. But you should always come away with a better understanding of Christ. He's the solution and he's always found in his word. And that leads us to this last point, the response of faith from verses 28 through 35. After hearing scripture rightly taught, as these disciples clearly had experienced before, at least under Jesus's ministry, you know, no matter how many times they'd sat under the rabbis and, and they had missed the, the point, under Christ's ministry, they had heard it. But here, after several hours of listening to Christ open up the scriptures to them, in verse 31, it says their eyes were opened. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to, the, to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Salvation is the work of a sovereign God. You do not choose God unless he opens your eyes. He must give you the ability to believe the truth of his word or you'll go on rejecting it every time you hear it or misunderstanding it, misapplying it. And then we see in verse 32 that they acknowledge something happening in them as he was teaching them. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They think back. Now that they recognize who it was, they think back to all that he said and they were, they're saying, Something miraculous was taking place as, we op as he was opening to us the scriptures. Our hearts burned within us. That's a work of the Spirit that is at work whenever we open his word in faith. And so faith is experiential in that way. 
Faith is also communal. Notice what they do. As soon as they recognize who he was and he vanishes from their sight, they just spent hours making this journey. Whatever their intentions were in Emmaus no longer had any, was always on their mind. They, we don't even know what their purpose was. They immediately turn around. They want to be back with the disciples. They want to share the good news that they now understand for the first time, it would seem. It's even more significant that, that it says that they did so the same hour. They didn't, they didn't say, well, man, it's, it's late. It's already dark. We know that it was already dark. So they go back several hours at night. They couldn't wait. They would have met back up with the disciples in Jerusalem probably even early the next morning, possibly. Midnight, one o'clock. We don't know precisely, but you can sense the excitement and the urgency to rejoice with the other disciples. They get back and the other disciples are rejoicing now, convinced as well. And so it's this joyful reunion. What it should be every time we gather together with like-minded saints. Acknowledging the resurrected king. One of my favorite expressions of faith is found in the book of Ruth. And the passage arrives in the midst of the widow Naomi in chapter 1, mourning the loss of her husband Elimelech and her two sons, Malon and Kilion. She's accompanied with her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. But she tells them, she urges them to go back. Go back to Moab. Don't come back to Bethlehem with me. You know, she's going back because she needs support. She needs to, to, to go back to her people who would take care of her. But they're not going to take care of, they're not necessarily going to take care of her daughters-in-law. So she sends them back. She says, go back to your people. Go back to your home. You might be able to get remarried. You're still young, right? Have children. Well, Oprah takes that advice she returns but Ruth it says clung to her Ruth 1 16 17 says do not urge me this is Ruth speaking to Naomi do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go I will go and where you lodge I will lodge your people shall be my people and your God my God Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi wanted to detach herself from everyone, Ruth clung to her in this loving defiance. Barry Webb writes, Her decision to return from Naomi is a choice to commit herself irrevocably, Not just to Naomi, but to the God and the people to whom Naomi herself is returning. Now, we didn't talk about why they were not in Bethlehem to begin with. They had gone to Moab, a nation they were never supposed to associate with. They had left the promised land to be in Moab, and now she's returning. In a sense, she's coming back to the Lord. She's repenting. And so that's the analogy, or that's the illustration that's that their lives, their physical lives, are a witness to. In effect, Ruth was saying, I will give up everything to continue to follow you. I will forsake the likelihood of finding a husband. 
I will forsake my immediate family. I will follow you no matter what. The result of Naomi's warning and her pessimistic portrayal of life in the land of Judah is met by this faithfully stubborn Ruth, this daughter-in-law. She truly is a picture of this steadfast love of God. The fact that Naomi's bitterness never turned into apostasy showed Ruth a sincere faith. In all of her complaining and resentment, Naomi never stopped trusting in Yahweh. She was upset, she was losing hope, but she never abandoned her faith. And clearly that spoke volumes to Ruth. Ruth witnessed Naomi's raw faith and it was inspiring. She was willing to give everything up in order to follow that God. So the lowest ebb of Naomi's faith in God was the greatest witness to Ruth, it would seem. So once you've really seen Christ, there is an earnest desire for more of him. Show me Christ, whatever the cost. Have you experienced faith? The kind of faith that would give up everything? When the Holy Spirit grabs your attention, everything else fades away. These disciples wanted nothing else. Their hearts burned for more of Christ. They didn't want to go to bed. They wanted to be with the other disciples, celebrating and worshiping him. Even as they were together, right, they said, remain with us. Don't leave us. We want you to continue to teach the scriptures to us. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe I should ask, do you still feel that way? When was the last time you opened God's word and it delighted your soul? Jesus is ready to receive you. The Holy Spirit can lead you to him when you open his word in faith. So let's ask him to do that for us this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this passage that, that teaches us how to read your word. Lord, it's, it's easy to get into a routine and a rhythm where we just mindlessly go through the motions, whether it be coming to church or putting, putting the Bible on the shelf after, after worship and, and picking it back up as we leave the home the next week. Lord, may we be the kind of people who can't get enough of your word, who continue to want more of Christ, who are willing to sacrifice sleep, who are willing to sacrifice our resources, our time, in order to commit to communion with Christ, to understanding him, to being moved by your spirit, as we read your word in faith. If there's anyone here whose eyes have not been opened, we pray that you might do so now. That even as we stand and respond with song, that we would do so with hearts filled with the joy of our salvation. Acknowledging that even now we are communing with the risen king who's seated at the right hand of your throne in heaven. We are lifted up into the heavenlies as we sing. 
And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, all of these are a means of grace by which our hearts can be warmed to the truth of the gospel. And so, Lord, do that work that only you can do, that sovereign work of redeeming us, giving us confidence and assurance in life everlasting. And Lord, may we respond by glorifying you for that work, giving you the praise. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Arise, My Soul, Arise, number 275.